welcome back to the Beyond Aromatics podcast by the National Association for Holistic Aromatherapy. I'm your host, Savannah Rose. You can learn more about NAHA and join us as a member by visiting naha.org. On today's episode, we explore the changing landscape and human relationship for aromatherapy's favorite buzzing friend, the bee. Our guest, Amanda Plunkett, has dedicated her life to understanding the world of bees and their unique relationship with our environment. From native bees and the well-known honeybee, to environmental hazards and the fires that affect their habitats, we hope to uncover some insight into coexisting with each species and how we can become a little better as neighbors. After years of suffering with an environmental illness, Amanda turned to holistic medicine. She began her aromatic education by obtaining her advanced aromatherapy certification with the School of Aromatic Studies in 2015. Since then, she has also successfully completed a horticulture class and gained an organic lawn care accredited professional certification through Chip Osborne. The wide range of training emphasized how health starts with soil. In 2016, she launched Be Rooted, a company dedicated to advocating for healthy environments. As an environmental illness survivor, she feels she has a special relationship with bees as they too are sensitive to minuscule environmental changes. She uses her experience to spread awareness for healthy environments, develop self-care products, mentor environmental illness victims, and naturally care for pollinators. To learn more about Amanda, please visit her website at www.berooted.com. So today I'm sitting down with Amanda Plunkett, who you might recognize from either our 2018 conference or from almost every single journal we've published, at least since. Um, Amanda is our resident bee lady. Um, And today I wanted to bring her in because we wanted to discuss some of the things, I guess, as of lately going on um, in the ecosystem, specifically in California, where Amanda's located, but I, I assume in the greater United States area, um, and how Im- uh, ecological impacts have been affecting bees and bee populations. So Amanda, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I guess I first want to get started and kind of talk to you about or let you tell us about what you do with bees in particular. Um, and it kind of threw me for a loop because I didn't, I first I thought you were into beekeeping, but I realized you're, you play a much bigger role in, I think, bee populations. So please tell us a little bit about that. Um, absolutely. I tell people that bees are a vehicle for my advocation. They're actually a cover up to, as a vehicle for me to educate the public. We um, mostly do bee rescue and relocate the bees in other areas, honeybees that is. However, we also do classes and education, not just on honeybees, but also on native bees, on aromatherapy, on organic landscaping, being that I have two accreditations in that, and helping people to develop pollinator landscapes as well as their own gardens. And so what are like honeybees relationship to the environment and why, why do you have this kind of primary focus on them? Well, I am a survivor of environmental sensitivity and environmental illness. 
And when I was healing from that, I recognized that bees are also environmentally sensitive. And they landed at my house in a swarm in a palm tree as I was healing. And I recognized that my future involved them. And I tell people that I'm much like a bee. I like the temperature that they like. I'm very sensitive to smells such as they are and vibrations and sensory things. So I relate to them, um, but not just honeybees. I recognize as I went into beekeeping that there's more to this, that everything of course is connected, but there were 20,000 different species of bees worldwide. And I had no idea because I had always thought that everything revolved around the honeybee. And of course, because one out of every three bites we take comes from the pollination of a honeybee. But there's a larger picture and those pollinators also need to be protected. And so, um, and you're located in California, what part of California? I work in all of the Inland Empire of Southern California in San Bernardino County, Riverside County, Orange County, etc. I tell people that we work most of Southern California. So we also work the high desert, we work the foothills. Our territory expands to so many different microclimates. So that's pretty cool that I get to see the different seasons according to the honeybees in low-lying areas as well as high elevations. So, you know, in your, in your job, you work on relocating bees. And could you just dive in a little bit more about like how that works and why it's important? Well, Bees, of course, honeybees, are kept as a livestock. <clears throat> so they're vital in our city areas because they are a native to Europe, Asia, and Africa. They're not actually a native to the United States. And many people do not want honeybees in our urban areas, but that's where they thrive with all of those immigrant plants, our ornamentals, our backyard gardens, you know, our backyard citrus and pomegranates in Southern California need honeybees. In our native areas, honeybees are not necessary. As a matter of fact, they can become invasive. And so what we do as relocators is that we, for example, if bees take up in the residence of someone's roof, it's very important to get not only the bees out of there, but all of the material, because as long as the bees are there, they're heating and air conditioning that material, keeping it safe, protecting it from pests such as rats. But if the bees are not there and that material is left there, then that can actually cause structural damage. So we have to get that out of there. So we take all of the comb and that includes the honeycomb, the brood, which are babies, and all of the bees. And then we take all of that out. We void it out with insulation and we close it back up. We take those bees to a local sanctuary. And um, that is kind of our hub to determine where that specific colony will go in the future. And so you're, you're kind of, so I guess you kind of stand to maintain a balance between um, where native bees reside and where honeybees reside. And I, we were talking a little earlier and you were telling me that's because of the nature of the honeybees and how they, 
I guess how they interact with other species. And can you tell us a little bit more about like why this, why you have to maintain this delicate balance of these bee populations and where they're located? Absolutely. Um, our native bees are the ones that are at risk of being endangered. Being that honey bees are kept as a livestock, humans have a vested interest in making sure that those populations are high. And yes, our honeybee populations are significantly less than they used to be. As a matter of fact, in 1947, there were 6 million managed colonies in the United States that were registered at a time when many small farms and small family farms were not going to register their colonies. So the likelihood of that number being high, higher than that 6 million is actually very high. But in 2000, 2016, we went from 6 million colonies to only two and a half million registered honeybee colonies. So that is a significant loss, especially to commercial agriculture. But in our urban areas, again, we do need those honeybees for our immigrant plants, but in our native areas, not as much. And there has to be that delicate balance because our native bees are at risk of being endangered, going extinct. There are over 20,000 different species worldwide of bees, and only a handful of those are honeybees. There are over 4,000 different native bees species in the United States and over 1,600 native bees in California. So I'm just gonna use California as an example, being that I live and work in California. So we have 1,600 different native bee species in California. 70% of those live in the ground. So when we talk about saving the bees, we're not just talking about planting flowers, we're talking about saving the soil. <clears throat> because those, most of those native bees live in the soil. And we have to maintain that delicate balance because the honeybee is what we call a generalist, meaning that of our California plants, they only pollinate about 130 to 160 of those native plants. So most of those they leave alone and the other um, 130, 160, they can compete with other pollinators. For example, many studies by um, the Pollinator Partnership um, have found that they can be competitive specifically with bumblebees. And that is because bumblebees are also what we call a generalist, meaning honeybees will try to go from many plant you know, many to many plants, one plant here, one plant there, different species. They'll go to our, for example, our native buckwheat, but they'll also go to our native encelias. <clears throat> well, many of our native bees are what we call specialists. That means they only may pollinate one plant or that one plant may only be pollinated by that one bee. So if the honeybee takes over the food for that one bee that pollinates that one plant and learns how to pollinate that plant, then they are competing with each other for the same food resources. Wow. And um, I think that kind of leads me into my next question, which was really why I reached out to you to begin with is um, earlier in this, I guess, in this season, I was 
wanting to find if there was a correlation or something that we should be concerned about with all of these intense wildfires and um, and our, our native bees and our native plants. Um, do you see some type of ecological impact or in the bees themselves and where they're able to roam and then the, the plants due to these wildfires? Well, wildfires um, and their impact on pollinators are actually, it's actually a very complicated conversation and very in-depth answer. The reason why is, of course, that destroys habitat for not only pollinators, but other wildlife. And as a beekeeper in an area where wild, prone to wildfires, I'm very concerned as well. <clears throat> this year, um, for example, Pope Canyon Queens lost 500 hives. That could have been me. The fires were just miles from my hives. But also in New South Wales, in the 2019-2020 fires, Australia lost 2,000 colonies that burned. They estimated that beekeepers actually lost closer to 90,000 colonies. That's a huge these, loss. And are these colonies, are these honeybees or are these like native bees? These are honeybees because humans sometimes will use mason bees or leaf cutters as a commercial livestock, but <clears throat> For the most part, our native bees, they're still wild and we don't use them in a commercial setting where we keep them, especially we don't keep them for producing anything because they don't produce honey. They don't produce anything for us, but they're valuable pollinators. So we can keep up the honeybee colony um, populations, but we don't really control what happens to our native bees they're not kept as livestock. So the concern is, is what happens to our native bees in these fires? What is the result of the habitat loss of the, you know, house lost? How do they get to live through the, the, through the fire? Um, and that is actually um, something that is very interesting. And that's what we need to be concerned about because the United Nations has estimated that over 40% of our invertebrate pollinator species, particularly bees and butterflies, are facing extinction in the next few decades. So we need to be focusing more on those bees and those butterflies that don't have the beekeeping advocates like our honeybees. And so what, um, I guess in that case, I, I kind of want to know like what what changes we might expect to see at this this rate of loss for either the honeybees or for our native bees? If you have any insights into, you know, things that can come of, I guess, these yearly and increasingly more intense wildfires. Advocates many oftentimes want to prevent wildfires. And of course we do, we wanna keep also um, houses and people from being affected by wildfire, but it's a very complicated scenario in an area where wildfires are actually a naturally occurring instance. 
And many of our pollinators are actually going extinct because we prevent wildfires. Um, for example, <clears throat> on the Xerxes critically impaired list, there is a minor bee that only lives in the foothills of Southern California. And it also lives in Arizona. Now, this specific minor bee only pollinates the plant whispering bells. It's a plant that blooms in perfusion soon after the fires, but then gradually declines as the other vegetation regrows. It's what we call a pioneer plant. This is the only food for this bee. And so this bee is usually only found in the first year or two after a, after a fire and is actually reliant on a continuing cycle of fire. And so the positive news is that for our native pollinators, it actually can be good. So I'll go over the good and the bad, right, of these wildfires. For example, a wildfire with the red haze and the smoke disrupts polarized light patterns, which are used for their navigation. Well, they can't find food, right? Can't find food because of the polarized light is being disrupted, but they also don't find food because the pollution from the fire can disrupt the aromatic signature coming from the plants, the volatiles, the essential oils. Plants don't have just one compound in that, you know, one essential oil in their leaf structure. They're also having a variety of different compounds in different levels. And each one has a different signature. And if a volatile is being reduced because of the pollution and that signature changes, that pollinator may not pollinate that plant. Actually, I have a whole nother um, presentation on the effects of pollution on the volatiles and pollinating um, from pollinators. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that being that 70% of our pollinators, um, our bees specifically, live in the ground, what they found is that our bees that live in the ground can withstand temperatures um, four inches down and below. And oftentimes they go much further than four inches into the ground. Because even though at the surface, the temperature may be 1,000, over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit at the surface of the soil in a fire, it may just drop down to normal temperatures at four inches down. Mm. So what cities have found is that um, for example, all life stages survived the heat and durations of fire at below that. And only 9% of 449 mining bee species um, in one specific study, which uh, only leaf cutters nested at that shallow mark where they could be uh, destroyed in the fire. Now, fire does kill. Um, you know, being that the other 30% live above the ground, it will kill our pollinators that li are living in dead trees and twigs and, you know, above the ground. It can kill them. But over the course of time, as the pollen, as the pioneer plants come in, 
three, four years post-fire, sometimes they can find 20 times more species in that area that endured the fire versus in areas where fire is being restrained and you know natural fires are being kept from happening. And so it actually contributes to pollinator and bee, specifically bee diversity if that area is severely burned. And being that many of our pioneer plants in Texas, I mean, sorry, in California, such as deerweed, um, deerweed hosts 15 different butterflies and possibly another 15. So possibly 30 different butterfly species host on deerweed. That's a host species that's a pioneer plant that only comes up from disturbed soil specifically after fire. But if we're resisting those natural fires in areas where human populations are not at risk, then we do not see that increase the diversity of pollinator species over the long term. It's so fascinating to know that you know, so many different facets of like our ecological systems rely on these wildfires and something that, you know, we've, we've feared in so many ways because of how much property damage they can do and how just intense it can be. Um, but realizing how necessary they are, um, it is, it's always this delicate balance of, you know, our relationship to the world as people, um, and, you know, how this world already had its own way of balancing itself out. And with the honeybees, are these fires, you, you know, they were destroying a lot of these colonies. Are these, in some ways, are, are there, I guess, ways that we can kind of balance this out? Because it seems like a lot of the native bees or types of native bee species really rely on this, but it, is it overall bad for the honeybee populations? Well, absolutely, because their habitat gets destroyed. But as beekeepers, we can ensure their survival if we have plans in place to move them and not to keep so many colonies in one location. For a sustainable beekeeper, it's actually recommended to not keep, um, to not keep more than 20 colonies in one location. So that's what I do. I try to be sustainable to keep the competition down to for native bees um, and keeping my colonies in one location at you know about 20 colonies or less in most instances. And so where they're susceptible to fire, do we as beekeepers have you know too many colonies in that one location, basically putting you know all of our eggs in one basket, not diversifying our locations. And also, do we have plans in place, just as any other um, livestock uh, keeper in those areas, do we have plans in place for moving them and being ready to go, essentially? Yeah, and just, I'm, I'm so curious, what, is it, what does it look like to move a colony of bees? Well, it's best done late at night after the sun goes down or when they're very cold because most of the bees are going to be at home. You're gonna lose less foragers that way. You know, in a wildfire, you may not have that luxury essentially because you may be 
in a hurry to get them out of there very quickly. But um, if done late at night, you know, or during the day, you close up, essentially you close up the entrance. I keep moving straps on my hives. And um, generally it takes a couple of people. So this past wildfire season, um, my crew was on standby, ready to go. They knew at any point in time, I may need to ask them to, um, you know, head up there with me and take the bees out. And so I keep those straps on them ready to go. You, you keep um, either moving screens or entrance reducers on the front or you have entrance reducers ready to just close them up, put them on the back of a trailer or a truck. And also I had a friend um, who offered me to have a trailer on standby for my hives in a specific area. And like I said, I don't keep all of my hives in one location. They're spread out all over, you know, all the way you know, south and north in various areas. And so then you just, I mean, it's when you're doing it in a hurry, you don't have time to put on pollen patties and fondant and all of that fancy stuff when you're moving them, long hauling them across the nation, which I don't. Um, I make sure that they have plenty of food in the hive. I'm a sustainable beekeeper. So they have more food than in other colonies. And if you keep food on them, then when you're moving them, you're not needing to feed them. Hmm. That's so, it's so intricate. And it's something that I've always been fascinated by as just somebody who's like very vaguely familiar with beekeeping. And I'm always like, how do they like, how do you, how do you herd bees? <laughs> how do you keep them together and stuff? So I, um, it's so you just seem to know so much about just like every little nuance about bees and their relationship to certain flowers. I'm just so impressed. Um, and we actually had to reschedule this because you ran into a bee emergency last week. And um, I was wondering if you can kind of tell us a little bit about this, because I think it plays into the whole delicate balance and how we interact with bees and with our own civilization and um, how it affects bees or how bees can affect it. Well, and also what I found really interesting about this particular scenario is that we as advocates, sometimes we don't even have the whole picture of a scenario. I, has, I was called in to help with taking down a four-story dead tree. When bees take up residence in a tree, specifically in the trunks, oftentimes that tree is already decayed because they have to have a large volume of space for their hives. So they take up residence in trees that are already decaying or they're sick or they're dying. Um, Sometimes that's not the case in like olive trees. Olive trees grow up, their base grows up. And so there's often cavities under the ground. Now that's natural even in a healthy tree. But in other trees where they're taking up inside of a branch or a trunk, they're often decaying and dying. And we do wanna leave our dead and decaying trees because it provides wildlife um, habitat 
and even you know bees important bees like our carpenter bees they enjoy that decaying wood and they're essential pollinators specifically to for example to our passion fruit vines and our tomatoes you wouldn't think that carpenter bees pollinate those but they do and so if the tree is decayed the diameter decayed at 70 percent or greater it is recommended when humans are, you know, could possibly be in danger from that tree, it's recommended by the universities to take that tree down because it becomes a safety hazard. In this specific area, um, yes, they had called me last minute to go in and help take this tree down because there was an environmental advocate stopping the tree from coming down because there were a colony of bees in it. This environmental activist wanted the tree to be saved and the bees in it to be saved. So they called me in last minute to save the bees and we were going to work in conjunction with the tree service, which keep in mind also had two biologists on staff on site um, that are very uh, big environmental advocates themselves, and they also have a certified arborist on staff. So this isn't just any tree company. This is a very experienced and um, environmentally caring tree company. They don't, they're not just going around chopping down trees and, you know, mm -hmm. and topping them. So Anyways, the tree had to come down because the property owner um, that owned that property had a house on the property and felt at risk from that tree. The tree actually was decayed. Keep in mind, this is, you know, four stories high, big, huge uh, trees. So up in the forest and the person felt at risk from this specific tree. It was decayed quite a ways down. There were no leaves on it. And the thought is, is, you know, we want to save our trees for wildlife, but that specific tree posed a fire risk because it was in the way of the power lines. And so Edison had actually agreed to pay for that tree to come down. And the property owner um, was, you know, scared of this tree and it posed a fire hazard. If that tree had fallen on those power lines, it would have destroyed that area if a fire had started. Not only the homes, but also many, many other trees in the area. And if it fell on the house, the people in that house would no longer survive. So the tree, we have it <clears throat> rescheduled, um, but that tree still needs to come down. And as an environmental advo advocate myself, an activist myself, you know, I see where sometimes we may not have the whole picture. I'm saving the bees in that tree, relocating them. That specific tree is coming down, not many of them because that one poses a risk, not only to humans, but also to the wildlife in the area because it posed a fire hazard. Right. 
And um, it's so, I, it's something like a, a whole layer of environmental issues that I, I honestly did not even realize would exist or would come into play. And um, so, so knowing that this is something that you do as a, as a job, I guess, is this something that, is it like a specific, I guess, is it a specific part of beekeeping or is it something over larger than that, that you got involved in with relocating bees? Is it something that other beekeepers also do or also advocate for, or is it something that you have seen as an area of need um, when considering like these, these layers of environmental impacts? Um, <clears throat> I think that overall beekeepers in general really are environmentally minded um, in general, at least personally, even if um, beekeepers are involved in the larger monocropping agriculture where there's lots of pesticides. I know that they don't personally enjoy that. I mean, I wouldn't think. Um, most beekeepers I know are environmentally minded, but as far as all of these different layers and the different options. I don't think that most beekeepers are as involved in all of the different aspects as we are, specifically, you know, pushing for organic landscaping or regenerative landscaping, kind of use those terms interchangeably. Um, <clears throat> they have a lot of the same tenets, but, you know, making sure that's what I really want. My long-term goal isn't to just keep bees. My long-term goal is to move all of our neighborhoods and our communities to regenerative and organic landscaping and you know, our schools, our parks, our, the neighbor across the street. When I give my classes, I tell my students, I said, imagine yourself at home and you drove here, whether that be you know, 10 minutes from home, whether that you were at work and you came here, whether you drove 30 minutes, an hour, <clears throat> I want you to imagine, to imagine leaving your location. Now, you passed neighborhoods, you passed gas stations, grocery stores, libraries, schools, parks. Where in that list is it really safe for our pollinators? Even organic pesticides pose a risk to our pollinators. So where is it really safe? What, how many neighborhoods and cities have moved to pollinator safe landscaping? How many of them actually put in native plants to help our native wildlife? I hope for the rehabilitation of our neighborhoods and of our communities. And the way to do this is one person at a time, one home at a time, one city at a time, but also, you know, not in just education, but actually helping them do it. And that is my long-term goal. The bees are just a vehicle to that greater concept. And I don't think most beekeepers have that. And I, I mean, I, I think in, a lot of ways you're it's so it's so fascinating to see how your relationship to beekeeping your relationship to organic gardening and lawn care um and and your relationship to essential oils uh kind of i mean it, it's layers on top of layers because you talked earlier about the um 
the the bees uh, sensitivities to the volatile oils in plants and how that becomes affected because that's their way to find certain plant species and um i it's amazing how you've kind of developed this all-encompassing area of of i guess a, not just a career but like a lifestyle and how you found the relationship between them all um and I know you do a lot of education. And I think um, I, I wanted to give you a minute to kind of plug some of the coursework and stuff you do. But I, um, I did want to say, I, I would love for you to kind of just talk about some of the ways in which people who necessarily don't, like I don't have the means for beekeeping, but I would love to know more about the ways in which I could help, help bees as somebody who realizes and understands their importance, but how I can, involve myself. Um, I live like in a, in a small suburb town, um, but I live in the actual town. So I have a very small yard. You know, I don't, I, I was trying to go with native species, but you also talked about what things you can do to help honeybees. So yeah, I would love for you to plug your courses and plug any, I guess, helpful tips you have for somebody um, who wants to be more of an advocate for, for bees and for organic lawn care. Um, absolutely. Well, with the pandemic, um, most of our classes being in person um, stopped. <clears throat> We've been working in the background and behind the scenes and developing more classes for virtual and to reopening our classes in the spring. Hopefully when the pandemic slows, we're currently still offering private mentorship and private tours. So, but of course with California just going back down on lockdown, at least not until that's over. But um, after that lockdown, you know, is over and the pandemic may still be in play, I'm offering tours and mentorship for private households. Um, in other words, you know, a family children even. We have enough personal um, safety equipment for even children and anyone in the household will be could be invited to that specific class. In the future, we've been working for several years in opening our sanctuary on a community garden. It's actually the Route 66 community garden in Rancho Cucamonga. <clears throat> Looking forward to opening that after the pandemic for larger groups and field trips, um, but also we hope to move to more virtual offerings in the spring. So that's kind of look forward to that in the spring. And then if you would like, you know, in-person mentorship or um, cl household classes or tours um, after the lockdown, then we can still offer that until the other things are launched. My tips though are to really focus on any space you have, whether that is in an apartment on a patio, you know, you can put potted plants and making sure that they're free of any pesticides. So try to go to your local nursery, especially native nurseries, they're gonna be um, better about selling plants that have not been treated prior to in the growth of that plant um, with systemic pesticides. And you can do that with any space that you have. As a matter of fact, I have a very tiny backyard, but I have a full garden out there. And it most of them are in pots. And I developed uh, raised beds, put in raised beds with um, straw bales. And so 
you can do this with any space that you have and advocate for organic landscaping in your neighborhoods. You can go to non-toxic communities um, to learn how on Facebook or on their website and also the Organic Landscaping Association. We have um, education for advocates um, with those two groups. And so talking to you know schools, talking to cities, getting involved with city um, city meetings and in the legislation of your city, but really start small even if because it can become overwhelming and you just say, I give up, I can't make a difference. But you really can. And pollinator org and the Xerxes and your local native um, plant society, like our California Native Plant Society, um, they have great resources for learning what plants are specific to your microclimate and what would grow well in your area to help wildlife. And do this at any scale. Do it small. Start with one plant. I had a friend, actually a student, who said, you know, one day, Amanda, I'm going to put in a huge garden here. I said, why one day? I said, just start small. Start with one plant. And if you'd like to do one plant a week, that's 52 plants by the end of the year. And if you do that over several years, you've got a complete forest. <laughs> So that's, that's those are my tips. Start with food because that's you can't necessarily keep bees, but all of our pollinators, not just our bees, need food. And that's the main complaint of beekeepers, actually, is that there's not enough food for everybody. So plant, plant, plant away. Thank you, Amanda. That's awesome. And please let me tell everybody um, the website and where to find you on social media um, if they can. And uh, just any ways you want them to reach out to you or keep in touch with when you have classes again? Absolutely. Um, my website is berooted.com. It is a little outdated. We were busier this year um, than last. So I need to update that. But you can also email me at berootedbees at gmail.com. My phone number is found on my website. Um, feel free to call me or you can email me as well. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. And um, you guys can also keep touch. Amanda does a feature in every journal we have of, of bees. Um, some, I mean, she covers a ton of different subjects with them and she talks about different pollinators um, and different bee focuses. And I, I look forward to them every journal. Um, I love picking up the little tidbits and obviously Amanda has such a, a great background and a great vast knowledge. I mean, she's going all of this unprompted um, or unnotes. So she, she's such a good resource to, um, to get any type of just what bee updates. I, I feel like in some ways I don't have 
the time to like learn about this topic from the bottom up, but just getting these little biteable chunks every month is so, um, or every journal is so fascinating. So thanks Amanda for always being willing to, to share with us um, and during webinars, journal articles at the conference. And now with our Naha podcast, I, I've loved getting to talk to you um, today and just, you know, learning more about everything you have have done with you know your life and how much you've dedicated yourself to the ecological impacts and uh our relationship to to nature and then to essential oils um so thanks again for being here thank you so much i really have enjoyed being a part of sharing with naha all right um everybody uh we will see you next time on the beyond aromatics podcast and thanks for listening today